You recognize that? In the Aeneid, written by the Greek poet Virgil, it's an area of literature that falls in Greek mythology. Virgil writes of the Trojan Wars, the uh, attempted taking of the city of Troy. And he writes that after a fruitless 10-year siege, the Greeks finally constructed a huge wooden horse at the behest of a man named Odysseus. And Odysseus' plan was to hide a group of soldiers in this horse while all the other troops fled the area. Odysseus himself was in this horse with these other troops, and so that's what they did. They built this horse and left it there. The Greeks pretended to sail away. The citizens of Troy, thinking that they had outlasted the Greek army, looked at this massive horse and took it into their city as a kind of trophy for their victory. Well, that night, Virgil says that the troops came out of the horse and the soldiers that had sailed away sailed back under the cloak of darkness. Those soldiers in the horse lifted the city gates and allowed the Greek soldiers to enter the city, and thus the city of Troy collapsed. And thus you have the story of the Trojan horse. It's a story of deception and really destruction from within story that kind of gives us the message, be careful what you allow in your midst. What may appear to be simple and really benign can rather be very dangerous. That kind of warning is echoed throughout the New Testament. The Lord himself spoke of this when he said that there will come Teachers that are like wolves in sheep's clothing. A number of New Testament authors address this directly in the churches to whom they write. But you have one New Testament book that in its entirety is given to warning about influence from within, about false teaching that infiltrates the church of Christ. It's, it's kind of like a postcard because while it's not the shortest epistle in our New Testament, there is only one chapter. It's very brief. It's kind of in between two better known books, so it kind of gets lost. But it's a book that I would like to direct our attention to. It's 25 verses, and it's found at the end of your New Testament, and it's the little book of Jude. And so if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Jude, I would like to take time this morning to read all 25 verses and then really introduce this book for our further study this summer. We would examine it in a bit more detail. Jude, I will not refer to chapters. There's only one. Typically referred to Jude in mention of its verses, Jude 4, or Jude 15, or Jude 25. So that makes it rather simple for us. So please notice with me Jude 1. 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you, 
must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. If you had to sum up this little book in a phrase from its contents, it would be that in verse 3. Jude writes, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for faith. Contend for the faith. And so I'd like to take this book for our study over the summer months and really examine this and what Jude instructs us as a church to do. Let's pray and ask God to help us in this. Father, we thank you for your word and even these few words given to us by Jude. We ask that you would help us to receive these as they are, the words of God and not merely the words of a man, and that we would seek to apply them accurately and carefully, not to go further than what they say, and yet not to dismiss what they say. And for that, we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you look with me again at verse 11? Woe to them. They walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, perished in Korah's rebellion. Verse 12, they're hidden reefs at your love feasts. They feast without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees, twice dead, wild waves of the sea, wandering stars. If Jude were writing today, he would be flagged on Facebook. That wouldn't pass the muster. That's intolerant. Someone would speak like that. In many ways, when you read the book of Jude, it stands against our modern sensibilities. Why does he write like this? Why is he so adamant? What's going on? 
he's appealing to not pastors, he's writing to the church, and he says, I appeal to you, contend, agonize for the faith. Be involved in the inevitable conflict that comes to change the faith, to soften the faith. And he makes this appeal, and he does so in the most deliberate manner. In fact, according to my count, there are like 40 what we might refer to as derogatory statements. He speaks of people among them that are like unreasoned animals. And this book just strikes at us as being so abrupt. And yet, what we learn from this book is that it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith. It is our duty. And so this morning, to introduce this book, I think we need to take some time to ask the question, what kind of man writes like this? Who is Jude? And this morning, to just sort of introduce the book to us, I want to just answer some questions that should inevitably rise to the surface as we read it. And that first question is this, what kind of person would write this letter? If you step back from it right now, what would you assume Jude's personality to be? Well, you might think this is a contentious guy. I mean, this is someone that's just waiting to blast you. He's loaded up, and he's ready to let it go. Is that a right assumption? I think what we actually have in the book of Jude is the example of a kind of man that has a credibility to speak this way and to speak plainly about these things. So who is this guy? Who is Jude? There are eight men in your New Testament named Jude because it was a rather popular name. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the name Judah. We know him to be one of Jacob's sons. In fact, he was the leader of the kingly tribe. Uh, it was also a popular name because there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus, and he was kind of a political hero uh, at a time prior to this. And Jude is a, uh, a reference to that. I think his name is shortened. His name is not given as Judas, and why might that be? Would you name your child Judas? Probably not, because of the context of the most infamous Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord. But that is this man's name. But it is shortened for us in the text. Who is he? Well, there was one apostle that was named Judas, uh, we're told. Uh, he's listed in the group of apostles. Uh, however, this man is not an apostle. How do we know that? Look at verse 17. He writes and he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and then he goes on to quote in verse 18. I think he's probably quoting Peter. But it seems to me that from that comment, Judas saying, The apostles said something, and he's not referring to his own authority as an apostle. He's actually making reference to another group of which he is outside. And I think if he were an apostle, he would probably be claiming that oh, his own authority in that regard. So while the New Testament mentions Judas, who is the son of James in one of the uh, 
Gospels as they're listed, this is not that Judas. He's not an apostle. But what do we know about him? Well, he says a few things about himself. Look at verse 1. He's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he is the brother of who? He's the brother of who? Okay, that helps, right? Well, maybe. Who, who is this James? There are a number of different James in the New Testament as well. However, if he's just stating this up front as kind of an introduction, this was what we refer to as a general epistle. It's not addressed to any particular church like in Corinth or Colossae. It's generally circulated. So, so when he's coming to state his credentials, he says, I'm the brother of James. And what that tells us is that the James he's referring to had to be really well known. And you say, well, that's probably James the Apostle, right? Peter, James, and John. However, we know that that James was martyred very early on in Christian history, and he gave his life prior to the writing of this book. So the James that is being referred to here, most scholars agree, is that It's the James who was the half-brother of our Lord. You say, Jesus had brothers? I didn't know that. Well, let me show you a verse. He's the brother of James. We're told in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 that the people say of Jesus, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, or that would be Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And here you actually have a list of Jesus' half-brothers. Obviously, Jesus had no father. That was miraculous, but Mary and Joseph apparently had other children. And so the James being spoken of here is likely the half-brother of Jesus because he was a well-known figure. In fact, it's commonly believed that he was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And they looked to him for leadership in that early group of gathering people in Jerusalem. So he's the half-brother of Jesus, uh, James is, and if Jude is the brother of James, what does that make Jude? The half-brother of Jesus. He's in this list. I think this is what he's referring to. And I think this list tells us he wasn't the oldest. Obviously, Jesus was the oldest brother, but next was probably James, and Judas was Jude was somewhere down the list. So he tells us, I'm the brother of James. And it's, to me, almost a, a, maybe it's a, a, a sense of humility where he's not saying, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, but he's saying, I'm the brother of James. It seems to me to come across perhaps humbly that way. What else do we know about this man? He's a servant of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now what's fascinating to me is to note that Jude didn't always feel this way about his older brother. In fact, at one time he thought he was crazy and out of his mind. We're told this in the Gospel of John in the 7th chapter. Speaking of Jesus, it says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here. Go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. 
Jesus was doing works in his own hometown and home area. And what they're saying to him, go to Judea, go to Jerusalem, go to where the aristocracy is and all the important people live. It would be like, go to, go to Washington, D.C. and show what you can do there. And it's saying that his brothers were pushing him to do this, not because they believed he was the Messiah, but they actually had ulterior motives. And it's saying they didn't even really believe in him. They didn't really understand why he came. Jude would have been one of these. So what happened? Well, we don't know. All we know is that according to Acts chapter 1, when Jesus has been resurrected and Jesus ascends back to the Father, there's a gathering in the upper room, and we're told in that gathering are Mary, his mother, and his brothers. And I would assume that includes Jude. That somehow after his crucifixion and resurrection, Jude understood why Jesus came and gave his heart in faith to his older brother. In fact, look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is, this is really interesting. Again, I don't, I don't believe we're assuming too much here. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9 in talking about the defense of his own apostleship and his rights as a minister of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? What he's saying, do we not have a right to, to minister the gospel and therefore receive remuneration for the gospel? Verse 5, he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the who? Brothers, plural, of the Lord, and Cephas, or Peter. It appears that perhaps in this context we're kind of given a hint that, that Jude, one of Jesus' brothers, was sort of an itinerant kind of minister. And he was traveling to different churches, and he was, was preaching the gospel and living of the gospel as he did. I don't think that's too much to assume. And yet in all of that, that's why we're told back in Jude 1 that Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, he understood who Jesus was. He gave his full, his full heart to the Lord, so much so that he would advance his message, perhaps an itinerant ministry. He was engaged in serving Jesus Christ. This is who he is. He's the brother of James. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. And now I want you to note this. Let's get to the crux of the issue. What kind of guy is this? If you know anything about itinerant ministers, if you're like me, I grew up under some preaching of, of guys that would travel the country and they would preach, and they were fire and brimstone kind of preachers. It wasn't always bad, but... There was kind of a saying among them, they could blow in, blow up, and blow out. And, and sometimes we think, okay, Jude's an itinerant minister, this must be him. Blow in, blow up, blow out. Is that the kind of guy this was? Well, let's just look at some of his language. Look again at verse 3. What does he call the people to whom he's writing? Beloved. Beloved of God, 
I'm eager to write to you one way, but I'm compelled to do something else. Look at verse 17. But you must remember who? Beloved. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved. Now, if someone, while they're writing, is continually referencing people and he's referencing them as loved ones, what do you think is the heart of that person? He's actually conveying that by what he refers to them as. You're you're beloved of God, and you're beloved by me. And I see a tenderness in this man. Why does he call them beloved? Look at verse 1. Judah, servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved by who? Beloved by God. I see this as a a family kind of sense where he's he's saying we we are beloved by God together in the same family. Not only that, I think he has a particular sensitivity to people who are struggling or are lost. Look at verse 22. He says, have mercy on those who what? Who doubt. Those who who doubt the truth about Jesus, those who are wrestling with this, somehow they've been influenced. He doesn't say, blast them. He says what? Have mercy on them. What is mercy? Mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. He's saying, have a heart, a hope and heart of mercy toward these people that are struggling in their doubt. Verse 23, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And he gives this picture of people who have fallen for teaching that isn't the gospel and they're headed to destruction like into a fire. And he says, Have mercy upon them like you're snatching them from the flame. You're going to give them the truth. And he has a heart for this. So I think this is a man who's not twisted and contentious and angry that we see so much of in our society. I think it's a man who is tender-hearted. It's a man who cares deeply about something. And he's very earnest, earnest that it be maintained. He's compassionate. Finally, I think we note he's exalting of Christ. Look at verse 24. He ends with this doxology. Remember, this is to his older brother, half-brother. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. He ends with the doxology. This is praise to God, It's praise to the only God who is our Savior. He's done this through Jesus Christ. He's exalting of Christ. His loyalties are firm. He understands who is the true Lord. 
And he encourages all believers to exclaim that with him in this beautiful doxology that lies as he can, at the end of his letter as he concludes this postcard, as it were. This is the kind of person that writes this letter. Next, I want to answer this question. Why, what compels him to write in this way? Why does he feel so strongly to speak this way? What constrains him? Well, we've noted back in verse 3 that he is writing appealing that they contend for the faith. But notice what he says before that. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common what? Our common Say it with me, our common Very good. What is that? Okay, what he's going to say in verse 3 is something like this. You know like when the president speaks and when he speaks, you know they have everything written down for him and he's probably rehearsed it several times. In fact, like two days before they leak out what he's going to say and they all say, here's what he's going to say and, and then afterward they spend another two days talking about it, here's what he said and it just drives you crazy like this was extemporaneous. It's not. And, and Jude is saying, what I'm writing is extemporaneous because I intended to write about this but I was moved of necessity to write about this. But the first part of what he wants to write about really tells us what is on his heart. This is what he's been thinking about until he was compelled, I would say, under the work of the Holy Spirit to write this. Okay? What is it that he was preoccupied with, according to verse 3? It was about our, the church's, common salvation. Now, what is our common salvation? What is salvation? You know what? I asked chat GPT this week. (laughs) Have you done that? I went there and I said, what must I do to be saved? That's a good Bible question, isn't it? You know what I got? A bunch of gook, right? A bunch of nebulous some of it kind of struck a chord, but uh, lots of words, very little substance. Ultimately, the best thing I came up with is believe in a higher power or the central teachings of your chosen faith. That might be a salvation for other people out there, but Jude is writing about our common salvation. What is our common salvation? We sometimes speak of it as this way. It's the gospel It's the truth, the fact that humanity is in sin, but God has done something to step in and save us from our sin. How did God do this? The gospel is about our greatest problem, which is the fact that we are estranged from God because of our sin, and the answer to that problem centers in a person, not in a religion. Not in a, 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 a moralism. The answer to our problem is centered in a person, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do to deal with this problem? The gospel is that Jesus lived a sinless life, 
The only person to ever do so. He walked this earth, lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. He died in my place. He was buried and he was resurrected because his payment for sin was final. And through faith in him alone, you can be forgiven. That is the gospel. This is the common salvation that we share. This is the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of Christianity. And without those truths, you're not a Christian. It's exclusive. There's no other way. Jesus is the only one that has solved our greatest dilemma of sin. And it is common to all of God's people. And so Jude writes and he says it is his heart to speak of this common salvation that we have and we enjoy in Jesus Christ. He loves to think about it. He loves to speak about it. He loves to proclaim it. Now, I just want to stop right there. Does that describe you? Could you say, yeah, I would delight to write to people I know and speak of our common salvation. I love to come to church and stand in the lobby and speak of our common salvation. To speak of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and what he's done for us. How do you feel about the gospel? How do you feel about that truth? How do you feel when that gospel is misconstrued? How do you feel when something's left out of that gospel? How do you feel when somebody leaves Jesus out of the gospel? Well, if you love something and you love it very deeply, then you get your feathers ruffled when it's threatened. You get really, really concerned about that when it's threatened. It's like you're married and you love your wife and your children. And when something threatens them, how do you feel about that? What's your response? It was his heart to speak of salvation in Christ. He loves to think about this and preach about this. And when it's threatened, he comes across very, very earnestly. Now, we live in an age, beloved, in which the gospel is threatened. It always has been. But we live in an age, certainly, where there is a vast misunderstanding about the gospel, even among Christian churches. This week, I'll admit to you, I was rather upset when I heard about this new idea somebody came up with, it's called AI Jesus. And they have this kind of picture of Jesus, which certainly didn't look like, and it's kind of like chat GBT, and you, you ask the question, right? Ask Jesus questions. And most of it's blasphemous and ridiculous. And I read that, and I think there are people in our world who 
know something about Jesus and now they're asking him these questions that he would never give answer to. And it quite frankly made me angry. And thankfully I don't have a social media account. But I think this is the, the, the tenor of Jude as he writes this book. If you love something and you feel very deeply about it, when it's threatened, you, in a sense, go to battle over it. You're willing to draw a line in the sand. What compels him to write this way? He's preoccupied with our common salvation. He knows the saving truth of Jesus Christ, and he's in earnest about it. Finally, it's probably the last thing I'll get to this morning. What does he say we must do? Okay, what is he encouraging believers to do? This again is in verse 3. He says, I was eager to write about our common salvation. This is what preoccupied me. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. And it's a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What does he say we must do? He is compelled to encourage every single believer to defend the gospel. And he uses this kind of language. He says you must contend. The word contend, we get our word agony from that word. And that little Greek word has a, 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 something on the front of it that intensifies that word. Um. Some translations translate it this way, earnestly contend. Be diligent in this. This term was used to describe the agonizing pain that would be experienced on a long-distance run. The runner that would run and have to overcome the pain to keep contending and earnestly going forward. It was also used in military combat, picturing hand-to-hand combat that, that Roman soldiers would engage in with an enemy. And one who did not stand his ground and contend would be defeated. And so this is the picture that Jude is giving. He's saying, here's what you must do. You need to contend in the day in which you live. Well, what must you contend for? Struggle or make every effort for the faith. What is the faith? When we read faith in the Bible, we think of it in a subjective kind of way. It is my faith, it's my personal belief or trust in something, and oftentimes the Bible's referring to faith in that way, my own personal belief in an object or person. Here, though, it has an article in front of it, and it says you are to contend for the faith. And he's not saying contend that you really believe strongly, He's actually saying more objectively, you need to contend for something outside of you. What is this faith, the faith? Well, let me show you where this is used in a couple of other passages. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's on the screen for you. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says the Spirit, Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from what? The faith. And here he's not speaking about their own personal belief, He's saying they're going to depart from what has been given to them to believe. Because he goes on and he says they'll devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's not that they don't believe. They have some 
belief in these teaching of demons, whatever those were, it's, it's their departing from the faith which is in contrast to this teaching of demons. So he's speaking objectively about the faith. Maybe this will happen, what will help. Uh, Paul also speaks in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept what? The faith. And again, he's not saying, I've believed all the way to the end. He's saying, I've actually contended for this thing called the faith. And so what is the faith? The faith is the content of the gospel. It's the content of what we believe. And what Jude is saying is, you must contend for the truth of the gospel. That gospel that without it, you're not a Christian. This is the faith. It is the core of our faith. Without it, in fact, you have no gospel. Now we must be very careful to understand what Jude is saying here. When he says to contend for the faith, he's talking about those things that make the gospel the gospel. Sometimes we want to put in here contend for the faith, and we're talking about things that aren't essential to the gospel, and we become contentious over those things. Someone has wisely written about this, and they've said when you think about the teachings of Christianity, you think about the truths of the Bible, you need to think sometimes in terms of, of triage. You know what triage is? It's, it's you go to an emergency room and a triage nurse sees you, and what she is doing is she's saying, this person is critical, they need to be seen now. This person with the broken arm that isn't so critical, they need to be seen, but maybe not right now. Okay? But this person with you know, the heart attack, they need to be seen now. That's triage. Someone has said we need, to, we need to be careful to do a theological kind of triage. And what is that? It has to do that, that when you have certain teachings of Christianity that are essential to the gospel, and when you gut those truths, you have no gospel. Those are top-tier issues. That would be like this, the, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture you don't believe the Bible is God's word, you can't believe anything it says. Without it, there is no gospel. It's the deity of Jesus Christ. It's his substitutionary atonement. It's justification by faith alone. And other things like these, these are top-tier issues. And without them, you have no gospel. And Jude says, contend for those things. But there are also second-tier issues There are issues that maybe come into play with parts of the gospel, but they can actually be debated debated among believing people. Uh, Believe it or not, I, I would put baptism in that category. I'm a Baptist by conviction. And we baptize people based on their profession of faith. But I have good friends who don't. They see baptism as something else. We can talk about that, but they're not non-Christians. Their position doesn't gut the truth of the gospel. We can talk about it among Christians, but it's not a top-tier issue. Some parts of eschatology are in that category, right? Where, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is what it says, but 
Does that mean this brother who says otherwise isn't going to heaven? No. Second tier issues like that are church issues, referring particularly to how a local church might operate. And disagreements over those second tier issues should involve conversations of Christians among Christian people. But these top level issues is what Jude is saying to contend for. How do we know that? We'll go back to the text. He says, I write to you to contend for the faith that was what? Once for all delivered to the saints. How was it delivered to the saints? It was Jesus himself who taught his 12. One of them was a traitor. But Jesus poured into those men and he told those men that when I leave, the Holy Spirit will actually come upon you and bring all things to your remembrance and he will help you recall these things. And what did those men do? They took up their pen and they began writing about these things. And it's recorded in the 27 books of our New Testament. Those men, under influence of the Holy Spirit, put into ink the faith, the truth of the gospel. And they handed it down. That's why we read in Acts chapter 2, it says, what did the early church do? It says part of what they did is they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Because those apostles, handpicked by the Lord, wrote down what was true about the gospel and that gospel is something that was passed on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And he says, this was once for all delivered to the saints. There was a corpus of teaching and instruction that was given to God's people that they would pass on and contend for. Now, in the beginning when that happened, they weren't contending over versions of the Bible. They weren't even contending over particular styles of worship. I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but when Jude writes to contend for the faith, sometimes we want to impose our own personal convictions and standards in that, and that's not what Jude is saying. Jude is talking about contending for the truth of the gospel and its ramifications for living, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing. So this is what we're told to do, to contend for this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I have another point, but we're not going to get to it this morning. So let me just give you, don't look because that's next week. <laughs> it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Sometimes you read a book like this and you think, okay, that's for pastors, that's for theologians, that's for, you know. It's written to you. You could say this is a book written to the people of Heritage Baptist Church and it's saying, listen, beware of Trojan horses. Things sneaking in unaware that will actually pervert the gospel and have an impact. And it's saying contend for that. Now, 
when I say that and bring that to your attention, again, because of the environment in which we live, we tend to think that we need to do so in a nasty manner. And I'm sorry, but, but the environment in which we live, I think, is largely because of our former president, who's very brash. And it's kind of started this wave of, let's get real mad about something. And let's, let's really let people have it. And now we have this means by which we can actually hide behind a computer screen and spew out all of our bile. In fact, I read about that this week. By, a, as far as I know, a non-believing person. And here's a writer for the Los Angeles Times, a major newspaper in America. And she's writing and she's concerned about, about the tone of people writing through social media on events that are very serious to the national conscience. And here's what she says. She says, like a digital tower of Babel, social media is evolving into an increasingly ugly and chaotic space. It is a real-time repository for our worst impulses, uninspired musings, scatological humor, and ill-formed thoughts that should be kept to ourselves. She says it's an online mall of America, vast, vacuous, relentlessly commercial, and soul-sucking. And in a time of immense crisis, political, ecological, and social, it has become a garbage dump of vile commentary publicly aired because that's just what we do now. And unfortunately, some of God's people have entered that kind of fray because of this. We need to contend for the faith. And they spew out things in ugliness that would drive anybody from the faith. And as we read this letter and study it, what we really, really need by God's grace is to find that balance between speaking what is true but doing it in love. And let my message speak and make sure my manner doesn't spoil it. That's a hard thing to do, wouldn't you agree? Especially when you feel so strongly about something. Especially when you have your own little justice meter that's going off. And what you want to do is hammer this. And it takes a lot of grace and a lot of restraint to be able to speak what is true, but be sure that my manner doesn't muddy the truth. So by God's grace, we as all of God's people in studying this book together will understand this duty. We'll want to be able to contend for the faith in our world in which we live, but to do so graciously and in a way that would even honor God. Let's pray together.